and welcome to If Anyone Cares 2.0, the first ever episode of this new format. I'm the same host, Riley McManus, and I am very, very happy you were with us today. For those that don't know or may have not heard the first edition of this show, I guess you could say, um, I'm 17 years old. This is my podcast. This is a place where I can come and yell about things in sports and in life, and we could just kind of hang out and, and talk about whatever. But I'm very happy you decided to make an appearance, uh, whether you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, I, I appreciate it nonetheless. It's an interesting thing because this show has kind of developed into a lot of different things, and it's supposed to be a sports show, and then I tried to turn it into a weekly content show that about whatever, then that failed. So now we're here, and this show is not going to be every week. Consistency is not one of my key points as far as getting something out on a weekly schedule, so I'm not going to try. I'm going to focus on making these shows as good as possible instead of uh, as many as possible. So I I hope you guys understand that, that this show is not going to come out like every Friday. But, you know, it's going to be not like four months at a time, you know. It's going to be, you know, two weeks here, three weeks there. Maybe have two episodes in one week if I think it warrants one. But, but like, also another thing with this new thing is it's going to be a lot of me, you know, because... I talked about it and the the thinking out loud, I guess you can say, portion of the the old show. And this is a remake, this is a reboot, this is an era of, of reboots of, you know, Roseanne, Will and Grace and The Office is coming back, supposedly. So I decided like why not rebrand the show and to make it and make it something that you know, from from my experience is making it something that people usually statistically like to listen to nevertheless i i decided to go in this direction it's gonna be a lot of me because i when i have someone on i try to entertain people and you go back and listen to uh, i mean you can't now but it's deleted but i'll probably post it at some point to it's like hey this is what happened you know but basically what i talked about in that in that show was like, I lose my authenticity when I have another person on because it's all about entertaining and, and how can I feed off this person to create an interesting show for you guys to listen to. And yeah, that's part of it. It's like, that's part of the gig, you know? Like, I wanted this show to, to represent who I am and, and I made the conscious effort to, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you guys some of me. I'm not going to be like John Legend and give you all of me. You guys don't deserve all of me. But nevertheless, I, I, I thank you and I appreciate you and, and you will be given an authentic piece of me every week um, through our new first segment called Three Points. I'm a soccer guy. Everyone that knows me personally or listens to the the bigger show I'm a part of called MLS Aces covering Major League Soccer, the U.S. men's and women's national team, and also CONCACAF events. CONCACAF uh, is the Confederation of North American and Central American Football Association. Conca, Conca, sure, whatever. You can Google it. Um, 
so like people know me from MLS Aces, and I've done a lot of things there. I've traveled, you know, I've been in cities like Atlanta and Houston and so on and so forth to cover the league. So I decided to bring a little piece of me, and I'm such a big soccer guy, and I love the sport um, a lot. I watch it at least one game a week. You know, I watch a lot of MLS games on Saturdays and Sundays, but at least one international game a week. I try to, I try to watch the Premier League as much as I can on Saturday mornings, but Saturday is my sleep-in day. <laughs> like, uh, you know, waking up at 7.30 every day gets kind of old, especially at my age. So, um, I always try to catch the later games. The later games are the better ones anyways. But to bring in a little bit of that soccer to this show, it, it three points. And if you don't know how soccer works, I'll quickly explain it. If you win, you get three points for the table. If you draw, you get one point. If you lose, you get zero points. And how soccer does it is you don't have wins or losses or anything. You have points. So, again, win is three points. A draw is one point. A loss is zero points. And that's how a champion's determined. Or in MLS's case, you get to go to the playoffs. So, to, to kind of bring that aspect in, I'm going to have three points where I talk about three different things that interest me and kind of give my opinions on it as well as kind of share with you guys this is an interesting thing in in the world that's happening that you may have heard of you may not heard of so i'm I'm excited for future of that um i'll admit when i did the first show on april 6 2017 if, if anyone cares i was nervous i was wearing a bow tie because it was such a special occasion in my mind that like, yeah, this is the first ever episode, this is going to be great, and this is going to be something that changes my life, and it, I mean, it hasn't, it's been more of a burden than anything else, but uh, I'm happy now, like I've figured it out, and kind of created a, a balance, and like, I, I've gotten to the point where it's like, it's not, it doesn't really suck anymore as as much you know trying to plan shows and get guests and everything like that but I'm happy now with it but I'll admit to you I am nervous right now you know I'm not shaking and my heart's not beating really fast but I'm just nervous for the future of how this is going to go because I like the, the biggest reason I was you know, stressed out and all that. Like, I thought the show failed because no one, like, numbers had dropped and it it didn't take off like I expected it to. And, like, taking off is such an unrealistic expectation for literally anything. Like, you have to build it up first. And I thought I was going to be a, you know, world traveler by the time I'm 17 doing gigs all around the world and, and, and being on different radio stations in different countries. And, like, like I've, it, none of that really kind of happened yet. So, we should probably get to the to the three points before we get to the interview. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain the format now. I'm gonna open up. I'm gonna talk. It's gonna be like a, a Seth Myers ish monologue without the funny jokes. Cause I'm not I'm not I'm not incredibly funny. Like I'm funny, but I'm not incredibly funny. It's weird, you know. Like I, I want to be funny, and I, I am funny to an extent, but I can't do that in front of a microphone. Well, it's more a, a one-liners, you know. Now, I'm more of a one-liner guy. I'm not witty, 
or anything. Like, I can't just come up with it on the spot, but if I know a, a good joke, I, I know when to use it. I'll read the room. But, you know, a monologue type thing, then the three points, interview, then closing moments. You know, it's going to be segmented. We're going to have transitions and stuff. We don't have them this week because, obviously, we had, to, we had to kind of throw this one together because of the one-year anniversary. And um, Shout-out Spencer Ware for the new logo, though. Thank you very, very much. New show art. It's cleaner. It's a little bit more developed. Um, I, I love the one that Jack Hoover did for me. And I'll never forget that that logo. It's a special place in my heart. But this one, updated, sleeker, 2018. And I'm very excited that we get to use it. So, new show, new us, who dis, let's go. I'm very happy you're listening to my podcast, If Anyone Cares. If Anyone Cares 2.0, basically. But we're going to keep the name. We're not going to put 2.0 in, but episode one. And uh, without further ado, let's get to the three points. Point one, and look, and that's where the music would come in. Like, we're we're getting there. Sorry. Point one. MLS, welcome to Zlatan. Zlatan Ibrahimovic signed with LA Galaxy on Tuesday of last week, arrived Thursday, and trained on Friday for Saturday's match against Noisy Neighbors LAFC, the new expansion team into MLS. MLS's 23rd franchise. Um, 24th, but, you know, t- 23rd team. One f- team folded. It was a bad situation. They were also in Los Angeles, called Chivas USA. Same coach as well, Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley, head coach of the 2006 U.S. Men's National Team that went to the World Cup. And um, and 2010. Yeah, 2010. They crashed out both times in the group stage. But that's none of my business. Let's just keep it moving. Zlatan came. And he, uh, he came from pretty big teams in Europe. You may have heard of them like Juventus, Barcelona, Milan, Paris, and most, most recently Manchester United. Bringing a huge personality, even bigger resume to the table. Zlatan is one of the biggest names in the league. Behind maybe David Beckham, if you've heard of him before. They kind of made a movie in his honor called Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, So Zlatan came and he had to wait a little bit. He didn't play uh, until later in the game. He didn't start because maybe he had a 10-hour flight from Manchester to Los Angeles. He had been there for one full day in, in a training session if, and everyone that knows a training session or a practice before a game isn't exactly the best way to implement yourself into a lineup and he was probably a little rusty after coming off a major knee injury for the first time in his career so his debut had to wait a little bit but Carlos Vela started off the game scoring two goals in the first half en route to a 2-0 halftime lead and right after the right galaxy added a own goal to the situation, and that was it for the lifeless Galaxy team. They just looked dead. They did not look competitive at all. But one man, Sebastian Lejack, coming off a torn ACL, pulled one back before being subbed off in favor of their new Swedish star man, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who came on with 19 minutes to go, down two goals. 3-1 was the situation. They had just scored. Galaxy has a little bit of momentum back. Then huge ovation for Zlatan coming on, uh, coming on for Sebastian Legette. And the comeback was started with a diving header from new signing Chris Pontius. Came over from Philadelphia Union. He's a U.S. national team player. In the 73rd minute, then in the 77th minute, four minutes later, I don't think I can emphasize this enough. And this video is going to be on Twitter. 
uh, the new if anyone cares Twitter and the logo is um the logo and everything is it, it's a pretty updated Twitter so I'm very excited I'll launch that um I mean I haven't launched it yet because obviously t- today is not April 6th but it's going to have commentary from John Strong who's probably going to be in this podcast very very soon um it like I don't know if I can emph- emphasize this enough is that this goal is world class and it's one of the hardest things to do for a human being he scored and he's 36 and he's coming off a major knee injury and a 10 hour flight like two days before this he's been in LA for a day and a half by this point and he comes and does this scored a 35 yard half volley right over the head of goalkeeper Tyler Miller for LAFC and just it was golasso as they say it was a golasso half volley that's where the ball hits the ground then he hits it um Went it on its way back down. It was just amazing. The video is going to be on Twitter if you haven't not seen it yet. That video is courtesy of Fox Sports. I, I uh, appreciate my buddies at Fox. You know, uh, John Strong, Stu Holden, fantastic call on it. And then if that wasn't enough, Zlatan, he had been on the field for six minutes, and I was like, I believe his fourth touch. So he touched the ball four times. And he was involved in a goal. He was involved in the Chris Pontius goal. He wasn't the assister, but he was involved. It was it was a nice little team goal for the Galaxy to get him back 3-2. So it's 3-2 at this point when he hits this half volley. So that makes it 3-3. So the game's tied after being down 3-0. Which in 3-0 in soccer, that's pretty much you're, you're done. So comes back 3-3. Has a 90, 90th minute header to put the Galaxy up 4-3. And he saved the day. Saved all three points. Little pun. And he was named man of the match. He he was on the field for eleven or for nineteen minutes. He touched the ball eleven times and he scored two goals. That is unbelievable performance. Zlatan Ibrahimovic is here in MLS, and um, you're welcome, Los Angeles. He took out a whole page in the LA Times to write a letter to Los Angeles, and the only thing it said is, "Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome." Signed, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. It was the greatest thing, and I'm very happy he's in our league now. And um. He's a big global superstar playing for a team in the United States. That's a good thing. If you want to catch Zlatan on TV, if I've got you intrigued, I'm I'm part of the MLS thing. I'm supposed to spread the gospel. Catch Zlatan on FS1 Sunday night at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, that is PM, as they play Sporting Kansas City at StubHub Center in Carson, California. For Again, that is Sunday night. FS1, Fox Sports 1, that's 219 on DirecTV, 9 Eastern, 8 Central, 7 Mountain Time. If you're on the West Coast, that is 6 Pacific. I don't have any, like Zlatan. That's the only thing you can really say about it. MLS, welcome to Zlatan. He said in the post-game press conference, (laughs) uh, the, the crowd was chanting, we want Zlatan, we want Zlatan. And Zlatan said, they chanted, we want Zlatan, we want Zlatan, and I gave them Zlatan. If you if you don't know anything about Zlatan Ibrahimovic, go look up some press conferences from that guy because he's he brings a lot of confidence and arrogance, and I want more arrogance in my sports. I think arrogant sports is the greatest thing. If you don't know anything about him, go look up some YouTube videos of Zlatan Ibrahimovic. 
he he made a comment in a with the LA Galaxy in a press conference. It's like there are four billion people playing football in the world in football and soccer. Four billion people playing football in the world. It must be pretty good to be on top. Then he leans back. It's like it feels nice up here, and it's just the greatest. But um, point two, moving moving away from soccer into golf, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is playing at the Masters right now. He is in 29th place. He's one shot over par. I understand that this is not a great first round, but this is not what we're going to talk about. I don't really care how Tiger Woods did in the first round of the Masters. I mean, I care, but it's, it's not the point of the story. I want to talk about Tiger Woods and as the the whole entire thing. I understand his career isn't over yet, but I want to talk about Tiger as it stands now. The rise of Tiger Woods into this global superstar that everyone looked up to, and he, he transcends a bunch of different communities in, in the golf game. And a lot of people like Tiger Woods. They even had a video game. The whole entire sport had a video game called Tiger Woods PGA Tour. He's transcended a bunch of communities. He's an American. He's black. And he's really good at golf. So, like, there you go. There, There's your market. There, There's untapped markets that you can get to with Tiger Woods with those three things. He's a black American who's really good at golf. You're getting all kinds of people that never watch Dak Nichols. <laughs> So to, to to see the rise and they and I remember hearing stories like I wasn't like a, I was I was alive but I was probably like two or three I don't know what year this was I think it was two thousand two or two thousand two or three or four where Tiger Woods just won the Masters by like seventeen strokes or something I don't have the exact number I don't have the exact year but Tiger Woods just won the Masters by an absurd amount of strokes. And then the next year, they had to change the entire course to make it where that guy doesn't win by that many strokes. To be the guy that changes the entire golf course to make sure you don't win, they changed an entire nationally beloved golf course because Tiger Woods won by like 30,000 strokes. To be that influential on the game. And people loved it. Tiger was the most popular golfer in the world. And I think he still is. We go to 2009. We see the fall of Tiger Woods. He's a golf club through the back of uh, what I believe is what is his Escalade. If, you, if, you, if I'm wrong, you can at me about that. But I think it was an Escalade. He had a golf club through the back of it in Jupiter, Florida. He had a whole thing come out about, you know, he wasn't exactly the most ethical guy in the world. He had some, you know, some moral things that, you know, weren't, weren't exactly agreeable with. Then the back surgeries. Then, then the drug problem with prescription painkillers. And, like, we, he, he was humanized in front of our eyes. Like, this immortal guy this guy who is so much better at golf than you could ever dream of being was just humanized 
in front of our cameras, in front of our televisions, or on our television screens. And it was just incredible. An incredible moment. When he came back with the Fountain Sport Championship. And now, I've talked to people that are crazy about the idea of Tiger Woods playing golf again after what he did and whatever. But come, everyone loves comeback story. It's almost as popular as an underdog story, right? Tiger Woods coming back after being humanized with the with the wife thing, with the drugs, with the back injuries, with everything Tiger had went through over the last what's it been six, seven years? Tiger hasn't been good at golf. What his last win was like, or his last top five was 2013, maybe five years ago, until he, he until he got second to the Valspar Championship. And we'll get to the Valspar Championship in a second. I got some words on that. But for him to come back and be as relevant, if not more relevant, in a game that has Jordan Spieth, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, Roy McIlroy, Phil Mickelson still hitting golf balls at a professional. Like, the, the, golf is way, has, has a lot more notable names now than I think it's ever had at a single time. Like, golf is a little bit more popular now than it's ever been in my lifetime. You know, you got people tuning in to watch Sergio Garcia and, and Justin Rose play at the Masters last year. And, and you know, Obviously, they both tried to lose, but only one could lose. So Joe Garcia ended up winning the Masters last year, and then shoots a thirteen on on fifteen today, and ends up with a plus eight. So like, <laughs> that was that was funny. I mean, I, I like Sergio, and I think he's a good golfer, but man, <laughs> they hit the ball in the water five straight times. It was just kind of funny. You're a professional golfer. My father, who's not great at golf at all, like he's not good, has never had a 13 on a single hole. And he pointed that out multiple times. It's like, I never had a 13. Well, congratulations. <laughs> You're better than Sergio Garcia at that one particular hole. But like, even with Sergio Garcia, like we always tune in to see him fail. Even with that, like the whole group of guys that is named, Dustin Johnson's showing up to the course at like 8 o'clock after not getting in till 6 a.m. He had slept two hours and he had drank all night and still wins a tournament. Like This is what we're dealing with in golf now. Like golf is such an interesting thing at this point. Like it, there's so many faces and so many names that, that people should know about and want to hear about. Then Tiger just comes back and takes all the attention back. Like we were watching Tiger playing the Valspar Championship. The Valspar Championship. I don't even know what Valspar is. Can someone tweet me what Valspar is? And I don't even know where the sermon is. It, it's something. Can someone Google that for me and send it to me on Twitter? At Riley J. McManus or at if anyone cares underscore what Valspar is. So it's an interesting thing. I want I want people <laughs> I want people to understand 
that the basketball championship does not matter in the eyes of Americans. Like, it's not a sporting event we're going to tune into. Especially on a weekend. That was the first weekend with the ultimate witching hour in college basketball where there was an upset every four seconds. It was the first weekend, round of 64, round of 32 of March Madness. And we're sitting here and not watching Virginia lose to UMBC. I think, yep, UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. We're not watching that game. We're watching Tiger Woods at the Valspar Championship on the 17th and hit an amazing Amazing putt. It's birdie. And be one stroke away from the lead on 18. He couldn't do it on 18. That's why he finished second. But we were watching Tiger Woods win the Valspar Championship on a Sunday in which the number one overall seed was losing for the very first time in tournament history. A number one seed, let alone number one overall seed, but number one seed lost for the very first time in the history of the tournament. And we're sitting here watching the basketball championship. Uh, that's just amazing. Then the next weekend, finishes fifth at the Orange Palmer Invitational. All cared about that. Rory, Rory McIlroy won the tournament, so we cared a lot, a lot more about it. But to see the, the support for Tiger Woods, especially at the Masters when he was hitting uh, practice round, hit nine practice holes with Phil Mickelson, they haven't had the best of terms. We're watching Tiger hit practice rounds. Like he was, he's hitting practice golf balls, and he practiced nine holes. Like it, it to see to see us and see the reaction of Tiger Woods just practicing. It's amazing, and how he just takes over the spot. Like like Rory McIlroy and and Ricky Fowler. Ricky Fowler. We're all waiting for his first major win. This might be it. He's playing really good golf right now. He's coming to this tournament pretty hot. But it doesn't matter because it's Tiger Woods. And when he comes out on Sunday in the red pa- uh, the, the red shirt and black pants, it's on. No one's going to, no one, no one, absolutely zero people are going to, um, are, are going to win other than Tiger Woods. If he's close, he's wearing that red shirt, Tiger Woods is going to win. And he doesn't even have to win for this to be the biggest story in sports. I don't. I want. I want to ask you, what's the biggest story in sports right now? Because I guarantee it's not as big as Tiger Woods. Is it the insane seven-way tie for fourth place in in the NBA for in in the Western Conference? Because it doesn't matter as much as Tiger. Tiger doesn't have to be. Tiger doesn't have to win the Green Jacket on Sunday for it to be the biggest story. He just has to be. In one of the two final groups. Preferably the final group. Him and a young gun. Like Dustin Johnson or, or Roy McIlroy or Jordan Spieth. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to see 44. I think I think he's 44. The 40-something year old Tiger Woods played Jordan Spieth. Who's like 23. In a final round of a Masters. In the, last, in the last grouping. That would be great television. That would be the greatest storybook thing in sports. And if Tiger wins it, if either one of those guys wins it, it's a huge story. But if Tiger wins it, or like Rory McIlroy, who's going for his, his career Grand Slam because he hasn't won the Masters yet. If he does that, if Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods are the final group going in on Sunday, it's the biggest story in sports and nothing's going to beat it. And how long is that thing going to stay in the news stream? 
How long is that replay and that story going to be told over the next month? Because until like the NBA playoffs get, actually get good after the first round, I think that's going to dominate a lot of topics on on highly questionable and around the horn and pardon the interruption. So that's that's an interesting thing about. So uh, watch that on ESPN for the first two days and on on CBS Saturday and Sunday. Sunday, um, you're watching a lot of sports. Zlatan's on FS1 at nine Eastern, eight Central against Sporting Kansas City. And Tiger Woods is going to be on in the mid-afternoon on CBS. The velvety voice of Jim Nance will have the call. My third point is about a little company called Blockbuster. Have you, do you, first off, if you're my age or younger, have you heard of Blockbuster? Is Blockbuster something that was in your life? Because I know if you're older than me, you remember Blockbuster very, very uh, vividly. Because Blockbuster is a big part of everyone's life. You go on a Tuesday night or a Friday night, and you go get licorice, and you go get popcorn, and you rent like five movies or something, and you just, you don't have to bring them back for a week. You know, it's the greatest thing. You just watch three of them that night, and you like watch the next two the next day, and like you watch them all again. So, Blockbuster is a big part of their lives. And now Netflix is like taking over that avenue, and I respect it. I respect the hustle that Netflix is. You know, getting people to not leave their home to to go get movies. Um, Redbox is another thing. Redbox, they, they come out like movies in the theaters. Then like two weeks later, they're on Redbox. And you don't have to talk to anyone. It's all out of the machine. Then you just bring it back to the next morning on your way to work. Or on your way to school or after school or after work. Whatever. Like It's so easy. I'm going to slip it back in. And it's fine. But Blockbuster, they still exist. I didn't know this. Indenburg, Texas. Their last franchise in the state of Texas, which is very large, will be closing its doors in February after a brief liquidation sale. The closing of the Indenburg store reportedly leaves just one franchise in Oregon and a handful of stores in Alaska. The Video renting business went downhill quickly in the 2000s as video streaming technology like competitors Netflix and Hulu made the weekly drive to the video store very unnecessary. Blockbuster eventually filed for bankruptcy in 2010. And this is what Alan Payne said. He is the president of Border Entertainment and he's the owner of the remaining Blockbuster stores. It grew from zero stores in the 1980s to being a real part of American culture all over the country by the mid-90s. And by the 2000s, it started to decline. We got to see the beginning, the peak, and now, unfortunately, this is the end, which is coincidentally a movie with Seth Rogen. It's not a bad movie. So, like, we have been, like, it lived a very short life. Like, Blockbuster's cool. Like, I like Blockbuster. And we had a movie gallery like those places were hopping on the weekends. They were hopping on the weekends. But like, they're not anymore. Because Netflix, like, and don't get me wrong, I love Netflix. I watch Netflix two, three times a week. Master of None, The Office, Stranger Things. Like, those those are great shows. Those are fantastic shows. The Netflix original movies. Beast of No Nation. It's like two and a half hours long, but it's really good. 
Then they have movies like Lion on there. Like they're all really, really good movies. I just want I just want you to understand that this is like a major, this was a major part of American culture for a long time. Was going to Blockbuster, renting movies, and just like hanging out. But like it's gone now. Technology's gotten to the point where you don't have to leave your home to do anything. Like Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Did you know Amazon Prime? You can like do movies and television stuff off that. Because I just learned that recently, and it blows my mind that Amazon's taking over the world. Amazon's gonna own this podcast one day, probably, because they just have enough money to to buy it. Like Amazon's gonna own every single thing ever that we do. Xbox is gonna be ran by Amazon. PlayStation. Apple. Like, it, like Amazon's going to buy the world. They just bought Whole Foods. They bought an entire brand of, of a restaurant. Or, no, I'm sorry, of a grocery store. They bought a grocery store chain. That's insane. Amazon Prime is like a thing that, like, I thought you just ordered stuff off the internet. And now they're buying a grocery store so people don't have to go get groceries that's insane I'm a little bit behind on that news I understand but still when people say Amazon's like ah yeah you're just ordering a, a sweater off the internet but no people bring you your groceries from Whole Foods like Blue Apron I thought Blue Apron did that but now it's, it's just a lot to process. But you can like get movies and television stuff. You can order licorice and popcorn from Amazon Prime. Have it delivered to your door over the next day. Because you're Amazon Prime. Then you can rent a movie and watch it at the same time. And on like 20 minutes. If that. The internet has taken over the world. And, and Amazon has also taken over the world. They're going to... Oh. Amazon Prime is one of the main reasons why Blockbuster has zero business. So, if you're in Indenburg, Texas, you're near Indenburg, Texas, you're within a seven and a half hour drive of Indenburg, Texas, I would recommend going there. And this store is from February, so they might be they might be gone by then. But if you want a movie, they're selling them for like fifty cents. So, have at it. Um, and, and there's still some in Alaska and like cities like Anchorage and Juneau and you know, obviously the big cities where people live in Alaska. I still can't believe people actually live in Alaska. Um, then like there's one franchise in Oregon. So everyone in Oregon, because I imagine it's not very big, um, just drive to that one and, and go get movies. Support the brand. I don't care if you have Netflix or not. Go get some movies. That's that's my thing. Let's let's go back to the nineties. Can we all just go back to the nineties for a second? We all have nineties parties and stuff. Why can't we just support a brand from the nineties? Anyways, that's my three points. I'm very happy you guys are listening to the show again. Um, naturally, we would have a transition here, but we don't. 
yet. Not this week because we threw this kind of together at the last minute because obviously the one-year anniversary show, we wanted to break out some new stuff and, and the new format and everything. So and we have Jody Avergan on the program. This interview is old. You may have heard it already, but it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. So I'm going to post it as part of the first episode of the new era, and I'm happy you're a part of it. Jody Avergan, 538, ESPN, producer of the 30 for 30 audio documentary series. Uh, if you're familiar with the 3030 films, it is just like that, but only on the podcast platforms. He is a very good guy. This is a very good interview, and I was very proud of it when I did it, and I'm still very proud of it now. That's the reason why it's the first interview of this show. And then after the interview, we'll have some closing moments. So we, we thank you guys for listening, and here is the interview with Jody Avergan. Of 538 and ESPN. Jody Avergan. What's going on, dude? How how are you? I mean, people care, right? <laughs> people do care. Yeah, people are listening. They, by definition, I think, care. Yeah. So. But uh, how, how are you? I'm doing okay. Just a little breakdown. Uh, you started at Fordham University's WFUV Radio. That's correct. You've done didn't, didn't your research. Uh, you moved to WNYC you're, mm-hmm. And you're now currently a producer at ESPN of ESPN's 5:38 podcast, 30 for 30, the audio yeah. documentary series covering. You know, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know the 30 for 30 film series from mm-hmm. ESPN. That is an audio documentary series, which it's it's fantastic, yeah. by the way. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, and I mean that's been kind of you know the big project of the last year. Um, and, you know, we could talk a little bit about how it came together, but honestly, it's been sort of a new venture for me. I mean, through my time at WFUV and then at WNYC, which is the, the big NPR station here in New York, and then coming over to 538, which is a sort of news and politics site, my time in radio has tended to be radio and podcasting, I call them the same thing, uh, has tended to be, you know, like news and often politics and sometimes talk. And the 30 for 30 series is obviously, you know, documentaries, uh, they, you know, take a long time to make. So, you know, I hope that I'm, you know, doing a decent job, but it's also like been a sort of a new venture for me. And that's been really um, exciting to just kind of have this opportunity to try something that's a slightly different lane than what I've done um, predominantly. You know, I've always kind of made documentaries and sort of liked to have more ambitious projects. But it was really nice to kind of um, be able to take the reins on on this one. Has any one of those projects been your favorite? Um, it's tough to say. I mean, I don't know. I'll be I'll be diplomatic here. I mean, I re- okay. Here, I'll say a, few, a couple things. Um, to me, the like process is is frankly more satisfying than the outcome. You know, so when I evaluate whether I enjoyed you know, look back on something fondly, I almost always think about, was it an exciting, collaborative, sort of rich, new process? Um, and, you know, whether the piece ended up being good or bad is almost, you know, a byproduct in many ways. I'm like much more interested in and satisfied and frankly focused on, you know, the the day-to-day and the kind of like, you know, the nuts and bolts and just sort of like put your head down and do the work and 
surround yourself with the people you like and then you know the product at the end again yeah it's just kind of like almost an afterthought in, in many ways um so you know when i look back at the at the at what makes it satisfying i would say you know i really like starting new things and so all of those conversations we had to have about well first off building our team and then um you know building a website and coming up with a logo and thinking about what our sound was going to be and picking our stories and then, you know, finding the right characters, like all of those sort of process things were super satisfying. And then the stories came out, you know, and I thought they were pretty solid and, you know, I could talk about some of the specific stories. I will say to, to kind of further answer your question that one of the hallmarks that I would like to think we've developed on the 30 for 30 side. And one of the things I am most proud of, is the range of stories. So yes, I like the individual stories, but I really like that across now we've done nine of these over, you know, in 2017 across that, I feel like we have a pretty big diversity in terms of small stories, big stories, uh, stories with, you know, high profile names, stories with more obscure people, um, gender diversity, racial diversity and format diversity. You know, some of our stories are, um, really straightforward documentaries. Some of our stories are hopefully a little more ambitious in terms of audio design and so forth. And I would like to think that that can be something we continue to do. I think that's a hallmark of 30 for 30 in general, that it's just like is, is a place where people can try new things. Uh, so that, you know, to answer your question about what I'm most proud of, I think it's that actual, that actual sort of like range of range of stories that we were able to tell. Yeah. And it's, you get something different each time, and that's what yeah. I like about it. And uh, I love listening to them and hearing the difference. And and I feel like for young podcasters, you, you go and you listen to well-developed podcasts that have a lot of money and people that are hired to do a good job in these podcasts to gain not really you know knowledge from it, just you gain more so technical ability. What does a good podcast sound like? It's just all the – the, yeah. the the people the the stuff that people don't hear that's the people that don't have the ear for this kind of stuff yeah and i mean i think you're right i mean it sounds a little callous to sort of say people and money but you know a lot of times it comes down to that it comes down to resources in every in every sense of the word and I mean, we've been really lucky that we were working from a well-established and sort of well uh, loved um, brand in 30 for 30 and we were able to sort of capitalize on that and that ESPN decided to you know kind of go all in and really support us and really think of these as things that are like the films you know need months and months and need tons of um, editing and tons of time and travel and going back to people you know we recorded you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of our episodes had almost 100 hours of interviews um, that then get cut down to 35, 40, 45 minutes, you know, but that editing process is really what hopefully elevates it. And then, as you said, you know, the sort of sound design and all that stuff we, we think about as well. But, you know, I will also say, in addition to having a lot of resources, one of the things I've really learned over the, the, the last year is that story selection is so critical because you know as you put it a good story you can go back and revisit it and it has those layers and when you pick a good story in many ways your job is then to just kind of get out of the way and let it tell itself and if you pick a story with it where you're like 
fighting against it and it's really pulling teeth to make sure that it's like interesting and there's those levels and that it has resonance beyond just the specific story but it's also just sort of like interesting in and of itself you can tell when you're fighting against the story and it's really frustrating as someone who's making it and also i think listeners can can hear too they can they can hear like "Ah, it's not really there and the flip side of that is like the best thing in the world when you have a story where you're just like it's an embarrassment of like great characters and great tape and great twists and turns and, and great lessons and great sort of like things it teaches us about the world in general. And then all you have to do is just kind of like hope that you can get as much of it in there. And those are the ones that I think lead to um, repeated listening and all these new layers and so forth. So, you know, we have spent a lot of time talking about every story before we say yes you know and we talk about it like what are you know where's is the is it is that depth there are those characters there is this a story that has enough that we won't have to end up kind of like fighting against it as we actually produce this thing and what goes into the story selection because i imagine mm-hmm. you guys have a ton of candidates that go into table discussion i i I would like the mental picture of you guys sitting at a round table talking about this kind of stuff, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's a square table, but yeah, that's basically <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, well, look, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One is we are really lucky to have a development producer, you know, someone whose job it is, is to, um, shepherd ideas along. So, you know, his name's Adam. He's like got a really great eye for story, but he also is really good at, um, you know, reaching out to people, reaching out to folks, saying, what ideas do you have? What reaching out to, and he works on the films and the podcast now. So he's just out there trying to find good stories and then he brings them to us. You know, we pitch him as well, but he's kind of the main point person and he does a lot of that work of like, I don't know, for, for lack of a better phrase, like stress testing a story initially, you know, so that we know by the time we all kind of sit around that table and talk about it, we know that Adam, and he's got a really great sensibility, he knows where the 30 for 30 is, has already kind of like done a lot of that thinking, which is really a lo- great luxury to have, to have a sort of development producer. But in terms of kind of what we look for, for any story, I mean, it's this funny thing where there's some things that are like clearly 30 for 30 is something that you can identify. But also part of it is like it can be a lot of different things. So you're trying to balance that like, well, does this feel like a 30 for 30, but also what is a 30 for 30? I will say over my time doing this and going back and watching a lot of the films, there's certainly a historical element to 30 for 30. You know, I think the sweet spot is probably 10 to 15 to 20 years. But just in general, we look for stories that have often kind of their own arc and then there's been and that arc has sort of ended and then there's been a little bit of time because what happens is over the course of time you know it can be five years but often 10 years 20 years a couple things happen one a sort of conventional wisdom builds in you know like a story that everyone knew 15 years ago by the time you get to to now if anyone remembers it they remember it with like in one sentence. And so then you, your story gets to kind of cut against that and say, well, you know, people remember it this way, but it actually was much more complex. And you get to do all those sort of classic, like adding layers and adding complexity kind of thing. The other thing is that frankly, like people mellow out. And so if you're talking about something that was really contentious 15 years ago, by now, hopefully people will 
you know, be more willing to talk about it. Whereas if you tried to report it out at the time, it would have been a little hard. The other thing that I think is a real hallmark of 30 for 30, and I think is really important for the podcast, is just great archival. So that's just a, like a simple question we ask for any story is like, is there archival audio? So, you know, if it's a great story, but there isn't um, great audio of, you know, the, the event or the people at that time or the people sort of reacting to it at that time, it's going to be really tough for us to do because we, most of our documentaries are documentaries that are told by the people who lived it. We're not as in the way that some other shows are coming in with a narrator who's kind of doing all the work and recreating it. So if you have a good archival that, that lets you understand what people were feeling and thinking at the time, you know, that really fits into our aesthetic. So I would say something that's historical, something that, you know, was, was kind of big in its moment and then had big implications. That's one factor. And then the other is archival. And those are kind of the two big, um, and then, and then, you know, you start to look at stuff in context. Okay. We have, a bunch of baseball stories. So let's find some football stories. Or we have, um, you know, we don't have enough gender diversity. We don't have enough racial diversity. We don't have enough geographic diversity. You know, you start to think about all of those things as well. Um, and then, you know, stuff just kind of floats together and you sort of end up with your, your pool of, uh, of stories that you're working on. And in any given moment, we're working on way more than, you know, hopefully we're actually going to put out in the next season so that we have some flexibility and some stuff is in the can and, you know, some stuff is, is you can sort of like some stories will fall away and not pan out and you just kind of want to give yourself that, uh, that flexibility too. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit to, mm -hmm. to you and sure. your start in the business and, and everything that's your career has kind of turned into. I want to go back to the start. Okay. What, 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 Go ahead. What sparked your interest in, in this type of business? Mm -hmm. So I, um, in high school, I did film. Um, I like, you know, me and my two best friends made, you know, movies that I would probably be very embarrassed to go back and watch right now. <laughs> but, you know, um, one of the, one of my buddies was the director. One of my buddies was the writer and I was the cameraman and we would, you know, direct some movies. Uh, my parents were journalists. My dad was a cameraman. My mom was a printed radio reporter. Um, so when I went to college, I studied film and American studies, which is basically a kind of like catch all, um, mix of history and sociology and, um, political science. Um, but you know, I, I did, I just started to focus on documentary films, and I did a couple of documentaries while I was in college. I did a documentary as my final thesis project in college, and when I graduated from college, I like didn't go directly into documentary stuff, but I kind of thought that was where I wanted to be. I worked a little on the college radio station. I had like a music show on the college radio station, but you know, I really film was my kind of world, and I remember when I did my thesis um, as a senior in college, I was like pretty happy with it. But I remember thinking like, Oh, the audio on this kind of sucks. And also realizing like, Oh, you know what? Like audio is actually the most important thing in a lot of films or to put it, the other, to put it another way. Um, when the audio is bad, it is the easiest way to kind of ruin a film. Um, and so I just like literally had the thought, okay, the audio in my movies needs to be better. 
I should go do some radio stuff to get good at audio to help my films. And so I started um, just doing some stuff kind of like totally on the side. I was at that point, a couple of years out of college, I was, I was just teaching. I was teaching like middle and high school English. Um, but on the side, I was uh, starting to like just make audio pieces. And I just learned how to sort of record and, and listen to a lot of, you know, public radio and started to just like do some reporting and do some, some pieces. And I quickly realized like, oh, you know what? Like, I kind of think this is a better medium than film. I kind of enjoy what this does better than, than documentary film. Um, so I started then focusing on that. And so I ended up getting an internship at the radio station in California. And then I ended up going, as you said, to WFUV, uh, which is in New York, but is affiliated with Fordham. And then I kind of worked my way into WNYC and went, and went from there. Um, but all along, I kind of, um, you know, was always like, you know, even if I wasn't, my full-time gig wasn't either an internship or a job in radio, I, from the, from the very beginning, knew and just kind of liked on the side, spending a lot of time making radio projects and like linking up with people who are my age and just doing stuff on the side. And I've kind of always tried to keep that, that like no matter what my main job is, I still want to try and do other stuff on the side and work with people that I like at a sort of, you know, as a side gig and more sort of low stakes, collaborative, experimental um, environment. And I've basically throughout my whole career always just been kind of like doing projects on the side. Um, and I found that to be really satisfying. At what point did you become comfortable behind a microphone? Because that's, yeah. that's really interesting to me. So that was never really, I mean, I think it's a good question. You probably identified something that, you know, that, that's definitely like <laughs> been a through line for me. I was never like, that was never my goal. I was never like, oh, I want to host or I even want to like be, you know, report. I have always thought producer is, you know, my world. And I still think of myself first and foremost as a producer. Um, in the sense of like, I really like, as I said, you know, putting together projects. I really like um, coming up with ideas and sort of shepherding stuff through. Um, I, when I was at WNYC, I was lucky enough to land as kind of my home base at WNYC at this show called The Brian Lehrer Show, which is, you know, no matter where you're, where anyone is listening to this, your local public radio station likely has a like 10 a.m. to noon local public affairs talk show call-in show the brian lair show is the new york equivalent of that uh you know in my mind and i think in a number of other people's minds brian is the best in the business at that he is i would say you know the best radio talk show host there is when i landed there you know i kind of knew that and i was really lucky to land on that show but i also it's, it's funny i don't I, i've never really had to articulate this but like I did feel in some way that Brian and I were on some sort of same wavelength. I just like, you know, we just clicked. We think the same way. I think he was a producer for many years before he transitioned to being a host. He kind of like thinks about that uh, in that mind frame. So I just kind of like started watching Brian, started learning from Brian and sort of started over the years, this notion that like, well, you know, I could, do some hosting, um, crept up on me. And so I kind of like, not very concertedly, but just like as opportunities came up to report or maybe do a little hosting, I did a lot of like pitching on, on WMYC. Like when it was the pledge drive, I would go on the air and 
convince you to try and give us money. Um, I did a lot of that and I just got more and more comfortable behind a mic. Um, but definitely always with, you know, Brian as the kind of like lodestar in my mind. And Brian is, you know, very much, he's not your like alpha host who wants to hear himself talk. He's very much there to kind of facilitate conversation and to just be a sort of place where good ideas can kind of flourish. And I've tried to, I'd like to think that's kind of my approach as well. You know, I'm not there to, again, I'm not there to hear myself talk. I will interject when need be, but mostly I just like convening good conversations. So I, you know, I think it's probably a very producery approach to hosting. Um, but, you know, now I've kind of just a little bit more and more done some more of that. And, you know, and here I am. Isn't that the show where you, you, you signed on and like a couple of days later they won an award? And you kind of oh, yes. you kind of yeah. took credit for that well, one. Well, two days after we we I I, I got full, hired full time the Brian Lair show, they won a Peabody Award, and it was very strange because like the whole station had this like, um, you know, this like everyone gathered in the cafe for like champagne and to toast the show because they'd won a Peabody, and it was like I think only the second Peabody WMC ever won is like a big deal, and um. At that ceremony, they basically also announced that I had been hired. So I was like standing up there with the team that had like won this thing. But I was like, everyone was like applauding. And I'm standing there, I was like 23 years old, like raising a glass of champagne. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'll take a look. I'll say my first like five months at WNYC were pretty amazing just in terms of like, I showed up at WNYC and like basically the first thing I did was cover. Um, Super Tuesday in 2008. So like, you know, the Obama, Clinton, Hillary Clinton primary is like heating up. It's like, you know, an election year. This, you know, the sort of Barack Obama phenomenon is taking off. That was like literally like my first night, first day on the job at WMIC was like covering that. And then like the next day they win a Peabody. Then like a month later, WMIC moved offices, which isn't like a big deal, but it was just kind of like this big thing that was happening um, into these fancy new studios. And then we covered the 08 election, obviously historical election. It was just this like very heady thing. And I mean, to WMIC's credit, and I have tried to sort of keep this in mind as I've gone through through my career, um, they just like threw me right into the mix and you know basically gave me responsibilities that were far above my uh you know what i what i probably merited and i just kind of had to figure it out on the fly and i think you know i'm like eternally grateful to that and i think i have tried to keep that in mind you know to just like go 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 and and um you know let let just like gather gather people you you trust and you want to work with and just like let them do their thing and it'll all work out yeah like and we it's like when you throw out a kid to college and he has to just go figure it out. Like it, going yeah. out there and having to learn stuff to survive is, is the best way to learn stuff. It's probably yeah. not, you know, the smartest way ever, but like what you were thrown into, it, it made you a better producer and a better employee, which is, yeah. you know, all any, anyone could ever ask. And for. I mean, you know, and I think it, it, it goes, I think it ties in many ways to, well, I mean, it ties a lot to frankly sports. I mean, I think I've learned a lot. I think I've learned as much from playing sports as I have from almost any other part of my life. And a lot of it is, you know, that by far the most important thing is, you know, work ethic, attitude, 
and kind of, you know, can you, ability to learn. And the things that I think a lot of people focus on, which is like raw, you know, either a skill set or some sort of innate talent, like those things I tend to think are overvalued. Um, and I think more than anything, I want to work with and I want to hire and I want to kind of like be surrounded by people who have a great attitude and, you know, pick stuff up on the fly and are like full of new ideas at any given point. And, you know, if there's a particular piece of software you need to learn or a particular skill set or, or a particular kind of writing that you need to learn, you know, you can teach that. Um, but that sort of basic attitude and hustle and all those kind of things, um, you sometimes can't teach. And so like, I, I tend to just like really gravitate towards, towards that more than anything. Right. You want a coachable guy. Yes, exactly. You want a coachable guy, you know, like, I mean, I've done a lot of coaching too. Like, you want the glue guys, right? You want the people who, who want to make others look good, you know, like that's the most satisfying thing. Like you want to see with that. that you, yes, you need a couple superstars as well, but more than anything, you need people who are just like, love being part of a team. Jody, I, I get asked a lot, uh, like how great podcasting is. And I get, you know, a lot of people like, oh yeah, I can do that, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people don't realize that there's parts of this gig that don't like it's not great. It's not something you <laughs> would put in a job description. <laughs> but I, I want I want you to tell people because like a lot of people listen to the show or you know people that are close to me, mm-hmm. and I want you to tell them instead of me. So you, we actually have a professional voice behind this saying how much you know this particular thing sucks. So right. what, what are some well, of the like non-glamorous parts of podcasting for, for everyone else? <laughs> um, well, uh, first I just want to say what, a, what an amazing thing that we're living in the, at, at an age where people think of podcasting as glamorous, period. <laughs> it's, that's pretty cool. Um, but look, I mean, I would say it's probably not unlike any other job where like a lot of it is grunt work. And, you know, it's um, and, and the one thing I will say that I think you might be getting at, but I also am curious to hear, you know, to give you space to complain. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I would say one thing is like, how do I put this? So, so one part of radio and podcasting that I just find eternally annoying um, is like booking. Like you got to track someone down. You got to exchange a bunch of emails to find out when they're free, where they can go to find a studio. You know, we did, you and I did this like yeah. over the last week, we probably exchanged like 10 emails to like, just work it out. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's like by definition annoying because it's, it's like scheduling. Like no one likes that coordinating schedules. Um, and the one thing I will say is that you don't, uh, you don't graduate out of that, no matter how high you get in podcasting, like booking is going to be part of your life. Like I guarantee you, Ira Glass still like has to occasionally like coordinate schedules with someone or like track someone down or like email someone who knows someone who knows this person's email to get a response and then they don't respond for weeks and then they try and track them down and there's a misconnection and they show up and the person does like that never will go away. No matter how big of a podcasting star you are, no matter how many assistants you have, like you're going to be dealing with some of that grunt work. The other, the other thing, but I actually don't think of this as grunt work, but like, you know, I would say 
that like the ability to just cut an interview, take, you know, 30 minute long conversation and cut it down to 17 minutes or six minutes or whatever. Like that is a building block of audio journalism and any sort of podcasting. And that will, that never goes away either. And no matter how high you rise, like you still are going to have to roll up your sleeves and just like cut a conversation down. And, uh, you know, and I, and I, I mean, I said this a bunch to like people on our team that like booking and cutting two ways is just like, it's a big part of this job, no matter where you are. And, um, and you know, it is kind of grunt work and it's often done late at night and it's often annoying, but you know, it's just kind of how you, how you move things along. I think my biggest thing is uh-huh. I do everything myself. We're, there's a very low budget operation we got going on here. Yeah. Uh, I, I hate editing. Yeah. Like that, that's like anyone can guess that editing sucks, but you said it booking booking is the absolute worst. And like you were pretty easy cause you responded. I mean, you didn't respond to the DM immediately, but <laughs> that's just like when I don't have someone in e- someone's email, but their DM is open. I'm just shoot my shot and see what works. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But now that I got, uh, like I got your email and it was, like we were done in like a week. Right. Sometimes, I mean, some, sometimes I, it takes yeah, a month. I mean, usually. I, I've been on the other side of it. So I try and be responsive, but you know, I mean, email slips to the cracks and I don't feel great about it. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, when you're, when you're like trying to book someone and it's hard and you can't get them, like it's often not that they are jerks. You know, some, some people are jerks, but some people are just like pulled in a million directions. And like, the the kind of I, let me I don't know exactly how to phrase this but like you know when I'm trying to book someone who's like famous you know sometimes I'm like oh they're they're like so like this person is a star this person probably has like a million people around them to handle all of this BS that has never panned out like the more famous you get. <laughs> Like I, you know, the busier you get, maybe this is obvious, but like that. So like, you know, when I, I mean, we've, you know, we've done a couple of stories on 30 for 30 where I've like, where we've interviewed, you know, like LeBron James and Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade and all those folks, those have been the ones that have taken the most number of emails. Whereas there's part of me that was thinking like, Oh, okay. I'll just get the one person who's like paid a lot of money to handle all of Gabrielle Union's schedule and I'll just work with them and it'll be simple. No, 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 no. No. Like hundreds it's never, it's never of emails that easy. over the course of like six months. Never that um, easy. With like 50 different camps, you know. Um, and so, you know, talk about booking nightmares. <laughs> but, you know, it ends up being worth it. And I think that's another thing to keep in mind is like sometimes, you know, this stuff takes – can take a long, long time. But at the end of the day, like the person who's listening to the thing they're making, they don't care that it took you six months to – book Gabrielle Union or that it was super annoying. They just care that, you know, they're listening to something that's hopefully enjoyable. Right. It's, it's behind the scenes. It's the, yeah. the underground work. It's yeah. It's yeah. bookings probably the worst part, but we do have instances where it works out great. Like this one, like we didn't have that much trouble doing it. Yeah. Just yeah. an hour and a half difference. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It works. You know, again, it's, it's usually for pretty understandable and benign that these these logistical things don't don't work out right uh one of the last questions i want to have for you before mm-hmm. we get to the lightning round um okay how, how have you seen podcasting develop because podcasts weren't like a huge deal 
until fairly recently. So through the last, say, five years, how do you think it's grown and what do you think the catalyst has been? So a couple things. Um, I would say, you know, um, well, I'll I'll answer the second part of your question first. The catalyst, I think, was um, a lot of technology, you know, like the fact that Apple decided to make the podcasting app uh, one of the uh, sort of default apps in phones. And then that happened to be right around the same time as Serial came out. Like, you know, I know there's probably like people roll their eyes when you say, oh, Serial is responsible for a lot of this. It was responsible for a lot of this. <laughs> yeah, Serial was a big, big show. But it was related to that technology. I think people kind of overlook how much technology drives consumption. And I, and I also now think that it's the other way around, that there are some real technological Root the fact that it's still based on RS. You know, I don't want to get too technical here, but it's the fact that it's based still based on RSS feed. The fact that, like, in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty hard to subscribe to a podcast. Like, you got to pull out your phone. You got to like maybe download an app. You got to like search for something. You got to hit the subscribe button, not just the listen button. Like, it's you know, it's it's different from like just go to YouTube and and it's there. Um, you know, so there there are some technological limitations that I think are preventing podcasting from really kind of like being exciting in, and, and sort of trying some new things. Uh, other ways that I think that it's evolved, I mean, I think one thing I think about a lot is that that word podcasting, I actually think is really unsatisfying because it can mean so many different things. It can mean everything from what we're doing here, which is just a sort of casual conversation, all the way to, you know, reported documentary style um pieces like you hear on radio lab of this american life or 30 for 30 that take you know months and months and months to produce and all of those are called podcasts and so depending on who you're talking to when you say the word podcast it can just you know a different kind of thing pops into their head so you know that's part of why with 30 for 30 we've been as pretentious as it sounds, we kind of often try and say audio documentary just because it sort of plants a different expectation in people's heads. So, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to change that word podcasting, but I think that the sort of collective consciousness needs to start to understand in the way that we understand that a film can be a bunch of different things, uh, that a podcast can be a bunch of different things. Um, I would still say that like a lot of the most ambitious and exciting sort of podcasting is ahead of us. Like a lot of podcasting still comes out of either the public radio sensibility, you know, this American life radio lab, you know, fresh air or like talk radio sensibility, you know, like ESPN, your local sports talk radio, Mark Marin, you know, that kind of stuff. But there's a whole world of, you know, fiction, audio fiction, uh, sci-fi, historical fiction. Uh, you know, what what is a I don't know, romantic comedy podcast look like? I don't know. You know, like there's a lot of uh, podcasting for kids is just starting to take off. So there's a lot of like new stuff that I think um, is on the horizon and that I think is going to come from new places. It's not just going to be people who like me came out of public radio um, and now are trying some new stuff or people who came out of talk radio and are trying some new stuff. We're going to see, you know, 
people with a film background come into it, people with a writing background come into it, people with, you know, no sort of creative, so to speak, background trying it for the first time. Um, and I'm really excited to see kind of where that goes in terms of just kind of like stuff that sounds, that sounds new. And and that's the boat I'm in. I I have zero creative background before I started yeah. the podcast. And like I I'd, right. I'd worked for a podcast beforehand, and I did like six months of like a YouTube job before I started out on mm-hmm. you know, iTunes and stuff. But I mean, I'm I'm 17 years old, so I guess I'm that new generation that you're talking about that that's going to try. And I want yeah. to I want to be the guy that makes the Romcock podcast because that sounds personally great. great. Yeah. Well, that sounds, I mean, that will, sounds like will, a great idea. I, I will also say that, like, um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's often very helpful to think of the podcast industry as very similar to the film industry or maybe even like the the, the online video industry, but just a couple of generations behind, but walking the same sort of path, you know, and I mean. I don't think until basically now and kind of like you, there are, there have been people who have come up from high school into college, et cetera, and been like, I want to get into podcasting in the way that it's sort of natural that people would say, Oh, I want to be a filmmaker when I grow up, or I want to be a journalist when I grow up. There haven't been, I don't think until pretty recently people being like, Oh, this is what I want to do for, for a long time. Radio. in their in their you know as a as their like second career or their first and a half career you know whatever and that has been good for the industry because you get people with the sort of diverse backgrounds but i think it's really interesting now that you have people that it's and that it's sort of grown up enough that people are just saying like yeah this is what i want to do and i'm just going to kind of pursue it from a pretty pretty early age and and truthfully i my initial thought getting into this like i'm going to use this as a as a stepping stone to do either live radio or broadcasting mm-hmm. or, or something like that. But it's yeah. kind of turned into this thing. Like podcasting is an acceptable thing. If you have the backing of a, of an ESPN or a Fox or anything like that, you have to, have to do something else for that company, of course. But, but yeah, podcast well, is like even, an acceptable I mean, job. You know, now. Yeah. There's people who are making, you know, full living from, from podcasting, but it is also, and I think you're, you're hitting on something really important here. It is also something that, the barrier for entry is still very low. And I say that, you know, I think a lot of times to people who um, want to chat about kind of like breaking into the business or the, you know, career advice or whatever, it's like there is zero excuse and you're showing it to not just start and just do it. Um, no matter what your kind of main job is, no matter what you, you know, occupies a lot of your other time. And frankly, you know, maybe where your the majority of your income comes from, you can always if you really want to go for it, find some time and the money is not, you know, it's very cheap. You can start a podcast on the side. You can start doing radio journalism. You can link up with other people either online or in your city who are trying to do the same thing and find people you want to work with um, and do that on the side. And then there's a decent chance that if you just keep working at that, you're going to get your reps in, you're going to get better at it the right person might hear it and then all of a sudden it can kind of like morph into your main thing. But, uh, but you know, I think that there's no excuse not to just go for it. Um, because the only limitation is really just, you know, time and hustle. And I think if most people want to sort of actually do this thing, then those are not real. Those are not really limitations. Right. It's $12 a month. Like that's it. And you're allotted three hours. If you go over, it's $4 per per hour you go over. So it's not really not that big a price. Yeah. 
But uh, Jody, I appreciate you making time, man. Yeah, of course. I really, I really appreciate this. I admire what you're doing. So you know, keep it up. I appreciate that a lot. Um, one thing we do with all our guests before they get to go is you go through the lightning round, five to seven random questions, ten seconds okay. or less to answer. Um, are you ready? Yes, go for it. So, what was your dream job as a child? Uh, probably documentary filmmaker. What's the one food you cannot bring yourself to eat? Well, I really don't like eggplant and celery. I just hate how they taste. <laughs> Who's your celebrity crush? My celebrity crush. Um, it's a loaded question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like Paul Rudd seems like the best person. <laughs> what accomplishment are you most proud of? Also a loaded uh, question. Yeah, um, I would say starting. Like starting a lot of projects, you know, just like being able to continually uh, start new, ambitious, really collaborative things. I really love that. What is your favorite Disney movie? Oh, man. Um, I, I'm an employee of Disney, so I kind of have to be <laughs> careful here. Well, wait. Okay. I should know this. Are Disney and Pixar the same thing? Am I allowed to name a Pixar movie? Yeah, I, I, get, I don't really know. I think those Okay, well, look. My favorite animated movie and one of my favorite movies of all time is Ratatouille. I think Ratatouille is the best. I'm, I'm on that train. Movies. I'm on that hype train. That's a great movie. Yeah, yeah it's a great movie. If they made a movie about um, a producer named Jody Avergan, who would play like him? Who would, who would play you? I'm just like, I'm 100% passing on this question. <laughs> Come on, you have to give us an answer. You could you could edit in well when I said Paul Rudd from Earth. <laughs> just edit it in. Okay, if you could be an Olympic athlete, what sport would you compete in? Oh man, okay, I can't answer this in ten in ten seconds. I'm gonna answer this much in more than ten seconds because you've hit upon something. Um, so I'm actually one of those people who takes ultimate frisbee way too seriously. <laughs> um, I played it in high school. I played it in college. I actually played. It professionally believe it or not and it is one of those sports that is like potentially going to be in the olympics i will be over my over the hill at that point uh you know when it goes in i'm a, sort of my career is winding down so to speak on the ultimate side but that's an obvious answer for me that i would love for ultimate to be in the olympics and i would have loved an opportunity to to participate i don't know if i would have if i was at quite that level but you know that would be great Say you're going to South Korea in a co- in, in a couple of weeks. What what was sport would you compete What's, in the winter? What the so Winter Olympics? Um, I mean the the what is it the skeleton? Like that thing is just that's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah. Okay, very good. You you did well. I mean, you passed on a question, which you can't do, but eh, it, yeah, we'll edit well, it. We'll, we'll make yeah, it sound pretty. I, you know, those those ones that go straight to someone's ego. I, I'll just pass on those. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I appreciate you making time, man. Yeah, likewise. Uh, very, 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 very good conversation. I had a lot of fun. And I appreciate you a lot. Yeah, all right. Take care, man. You too. I absolutely love that interview. I love his perception. I love everything about how he does his job and how he views the industry. Uh, I hope to have him back on again pretty soon, but that's um, a fantastic interview, and I'm very, very happy that we got him on the old show but now we're moving forward times are are progressing but now it's time for the closing moment 
and that is happy one year anniversary to everyone that has been involved with the show at some point in their life, whether they're with us now or not. I I thank you, and I recognize all the sacrifices that you made. I recognize all the sacrifices I made to make this thing happen and to continue and sustain this show over the last year. And I just just want to tell everyone my gratitude, live and on air, that it, it means so much to me, and the show means a lot to me. That to keep it going for a year is something that uh, I actually realistically did not think we can do, but we've done it. I, I'm full of I'm full of joy at that. But if anyone cares, 2.0 episode one is now officially over. We thank you for listening, and be back for episode two. You can follow us on Twitter at Menace at if anyone cares underscore. Thank you to Spencer Ware for the new show art and the music at the beginning. It's going to be a wild ride, friends. I hope you stick along with us. Thank you for listening. And as always, I'm Relic Menace, if anyone cares. <laughs>